Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. You are listening to a pleasure podcast. For more from our sex podcast collective, visit pleasurepodcasts.com. Welcome back to Private Parts Unknown, a podcast about love and sexuality around the world. I'm Courtney Kosak, and today we're talking about the history and politics of sex workers' social movements. I have been covering LA area stripper unionization efforts since 2019. I now consider myself an old pro at covering the old pros. And currently, there's a strip club in North Hollywood called Star Gardens that is trying to unionize. But there's an antecedent to even that. A classic example of stripper unionization that is like the case study that is often pointed to. And it all started with a butthole. We had one-way glass and dancers were getting filmed through the one-way glass. And that was kind of the beginnings of the internet and the beginnings of really good camera technology. (laughs) So essentially we were getting porn made from our images and uh, not knowing where it was going and nobody getting paid for it. Wasn't it you on stage? My butthole? Yeah. Tell them the story of my butthole. (laughs) Due to various concerns up to and including unauthorized butthole porn, strippers at San Francisco's Lusty Lady organized into the Exotic Dancers Union in 1996. And eventually the strippers even bought the club and ran it as a worker-owned co-op until the SF Lusty Lady closed in 2013. I am gonna do a whole episode about the Lusty Lady and another episode about Star Gardens in the very near future. But first I wanted to lay a little groundwork with today's guest. Hi, I'm Jane Swift. I'm a historian and I specialize in the history of sexuality, gender and labor in the US. And I'm writing a book about the history of sex worker social movements in which the lusty lady features prominently. I am a former lusty. Jane was a lusty at the Seattle location towards the end of its existence. The lusty locations in SF and Seattle were sisters and shared ownership for a time, but the Seattle location never unionized, which we're going to get to more later. But first, I want to dive into Jane's research on sex worker social movements. There is so much good stuff in this episode, but I just want to underline one of the coolest things I learned from Jane. We have sex workers to thank for sex positive feminism. The dissertation is a cultural history of sex worker social movements in the late 20th century U.S. And specifically what I'm doing in it is I'm honing in on the role that what we would call like sex positivity or sex positive politics have played in both sort of enabling those movements in really good and powerful ways and also constraining them. And so as a result of that sort of like focus, I use the lusty lady 
as a pretty central case study within the book itself. So it ends up actually sort of being a history of the lefty lady alongside a history of sex worker social movements and alongside a history of sex positivity. Just to touch on the sex positive feminism, I'm really interested to hear more about that, both like you mentioned the obviously benefits but then the drawbacks as well. Yeah, so I make a, a couple of different arguments in the book about sex positivity. I mean, I start with by like the problem that we have constantly of how do we define right this thing? Yeah. Um, I think, you know, if you ask a lot of people what they mean by sex positivity, they're really going to struggle to come up with a definition, but they're going to claim to know some version of it, right? So I use a definition that's pretty broad and it's basically boils down to sex positivity is about a politics that connects the individual's pursuit of sexual agency to broader questions of gender, racial, and economic inequality, right? And so one of the things I really want to do within this piece of research is to have people see that what we call sex positivity is largely a creation of sex workers, and grows out of the material conditions of performing sexual labor in a society where it's criminalized and stigmatized and exploited. And if we think about sex positivity in that way, I think it really sort of shifts our understanding from this kind of anemic, hollow politics of like, everybody should just have more sex and sex is great, you know, to actually thinking a little bit about like, what would be a materialist vision of sex positivity that says, this is a politics that is concerned with questions of criminalization and worker power and things like that. I mean, we've obviously seen sex work just in general become more mainstream over the last, I don't know, however many years. Yeah. There's like Hustler, you know, all yeah. movies and and it's glorified in a lot of ways, I feel like today. And in some ways that's great. But do you think that the recognition of that sex positive feminism is part of that? growing, I don't know if it's acceptance exactly, but more so? Yeah, I would definitely say that sex positivity, the the enabling side of sex positivity for sex worker social movements is that, that it gives sex workers a way to speak back to those sort of public voices that would condemn that kind of right. work and would say people that do this kind of work are pathologized or have some flaw and the work should not exist. So yeah, I think the mainstreaming of sex work and is in many ways partly been enabled by sex positive politics, which function as kind of like a pride politics, similar to like LGBTQ people needed a politics of saying gay is good, right? Right. Yeah. It's like a feedback loop. It's like a byproduct of that sex positivity that all of us can now kind of like celebrate that a little bit more. Okay. So I would love to know any other key findings from your dissertation or things that are like cornerstones. You know, one of the things that's so interesting about the last thing I was thinking about this in, in reference to the questions that you would sort of sent was that, you know, it's this really historically significant business, even prior to the unionization battles, the late nineties, and then later the cooperation battles, like it was already very well known among sex workers and within sex worker counterpublics because so many people sort of testified about their experience working there or wrote about it or produced literature or art or some kind about it. And I think one of the things that I was really interested in in approaching this research project was the question of like, what was it about this specific business and say, not so many other sex businesses 
that allowed it to be become like this site for these really groundbreaking labor struggles, right? Like there are tons of peep shows in the United States in the 80s at this time period, lots of strip clubs. Why this one and not others? And I guess, you know, I see like there's a couple of very basic reasons for that, right? Which is, well, workers at the Lusty were always sort of classified as employees and to unionize, to have the backing of the National Labor Relations Board in this country, you got to be an employee, right? So that helps. There's also, you know, the fact that like the sort of organization of labor within the business is very different than say like a lot of um, strip clubs, right? Like I think in public parlance, people talk about the Lusty as if it was a strip club, but it wasn't, right? It was a peep show. Yeah. Will you explain that, how the difference, because I conflate the two as well. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. It was a, it was kind of a hybrid business. So you could go to the lusty and like watch porn on, you know, eight millimeter or eventually, you know, DVD, et cetera. And you could also get live entertainment. What made it a peep show versus a strip club was that the stage was structured in such a way that it was sort of like, there was a warren of private booths around it that, you know, an individual could go into and occupy. And at some of those booths, at least, you know, early on in in its years had one way glass where you Mm -hmm. could not, if you were the dancer, you could not see the person on the other side of the glass and some had two way glass. So it was a business that was model that was really facilitated around the idea of going to watch a bunch of women on stage at the same time, do erotic dance, do erotic performance And you could either, you know, pleasure yourself, engage in masturbation, or just engage with the dancers or just watch be a voyeur. So it's kind of like a business model that was straddling that transition from like when people used to go to movie theaters to consume their porn Uh to like live erotic dance and performance that we know sort of in the contemporary strip club model of today. And because dancers were on stage at the same time, like literally sometimes you would be dancing with four other women on this tiny little stage, that really sort of gives the business a sort of setup that makes it more conducive to things like a unionization battle. Mm. Because the organization of labor is such that you have to work cooperatively, right? And you're not competing against your coworkers for dances, tips, earnings in any way. So in some ways, that's a factor, right? That allows this business to become that sort of site of unionization. But the sort of last component that I add in my research is that this fact that sex positivity is so strongly associated with this business and comes out of this business is in many ways this glue that held the unionization battles together. So I think that one of the things that I'm trying to sort of point to is that like if we understand sex positivity in relationship to sex work, we can see that it can actually be a way to engage as a worker to fight back against your you know, shitty workplace conditions or to demand more from your employer. Yeah, that's really interesting. Do you think because, and you know, I know you have to be a little more scientific in your research, but like because they were in SF and Seattle, places that we think of as sort of liberal places, and it seems like there are so many highly educated former lusties. And so it's just interesting that it's like, yeah, it seems like it would have been a hotbed for like intellectual ideas about sex work and feminism. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's fair to say. And I think, you know, I'll qualify that and say like, 
we don't have that much research about the history of specific sex businesses, right? So it's possible that there's like a version of the lusty in Atlanta that we just don't know about yet, right? But I think that in general, during that time period of the 1980s and 1990s, a lot of like women that are working in the sex industry in particular are really interested in using their work as sort of a space to test out feminist debates, theories, concepts, to bring their leftist politics to the table. So I, you know, I wouldn't draw a causal connection, but I would say that we definitely see during that time period, a lot of women who are working in the sex industry really interested in sort of using it as a theoretical breeding ground. Yeah. And another thing that was interesting, I went to a panel and there were some former lusties. They were all there after Star Gardens. I don't know if you've been following Star Gardens, their vote in December, but they were saying, you know, somebody made the point, like you couldn't be out in the same way at that time. And I'm just curious your thoughts on that and how you've seen if you've seen a change in that over the last, you know, couple decades. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, in many ways, right? Like we can sort of think about the evolution of sex worker politics and we want to plot it in relationship to say the evolution of LGBTQ politics, right? Like it was really important during sort of the seventies in particular for LGBTQ movements to have this sort of strong emphasis on the politics of coming out and declaring mm-hmm. sort of your in public. And in some ways, like I think, we can see similar things happening at different moments among sex workers. And it was, yeah, it was, and it still is difficult to be out as a sex worker, right? You might face all sorts of negative consequences as a result, but definitely I think that one of the things that sex positivity has done is it's really enabled people to speak back to those voices that would condemn them and say, actually, you know, I am happy to be a sexual outlaw in some way, or actually my work has value, or actually I'm performing a necessary service. Yeah. Um, At the protest, there was, God, I can't remember his name. A, A rock guy was there. I'm talking about Tom Morello of Rage Against the Machine. He came out the last night of the Star Gardens picket line before their union count in December. My name is Tom Morello and I'm a union man. For 34 years, I've been a member of Musicians Local 47. They said, Tom, why are you going to play songs for exotic dancers who are protesting in North Hollywood? I said, because the exotic dancers in North Hollywood are protesting, are making history, and I want to be a part of it. So Are we in this together, people? Are we in this together, people? Civilian, camera person, everybody, young and old, exciting, rich and poor, black and white, Hebrew and Muslim, to jump the fuck up when I give the signal. Is that all right? Jump the fuck up in solidarity, people. Are we in this together, people? 
was a complicated and he was playing the guitar and he was like you know in support of the strippers but he kept saying dancers and it was really bothering one of the girls she would be like it's stripper <laughs> she'd like yell at him stripper and he was like there to support them so it was just a really funny kind of like moment and then he said it at the end but do you deal with any of like the linguistics of it in your research and how that has evolved? Yeah. I mean, you know, it's interesting. It's like, even though the lusty is sort of like this notoriously famous business, like all of the people that work there weren't necessarily this like highly educated, you know, really right. sophisticated, well off privileged workforce. It was a peep show that had a very low barrier to entry. And that catered to a clientele that was often very like working class or mixed, you know, class backgrounds. So you would have like people that, you know, started doing survival sex at a very young age, working alongside somebody that would be getting a PhD, right? Mm -hmm. And my contention is that all of those people ended up playing a role in the creation of what we would call like sex positive politics, even if they didn't identify with terms like stripper, sex worker, or sort of that movement to reclaim and like find pride within that work. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. So as I said at the beginning, the San Francisco lusty lady unionized in 1996, but the Seattle lusty lady never did. So I was curious about what factors led them down these divergent paths. So you had experience in, at the Seattle location. What do you think about the difference in what happened at SF and at your location? And if there's anything kind of takeaways from that? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I definitely spoke to workers at both Seattle and San Francisco branches um, at disparate moments. I would say that I find a pretty strong continuity amongst those two branches, even though, you know, by the time I was working there, they'd been separated for many years in that they both cultivated, like I said, the sort of ethos of sex positivity. Uh, you know, I think this, it always sort of an interesting question of like, what was it that made San Francisco pursue unionization and in a way that like that didn't necessarily happen or happen as strongly, you know, at the Seattle branch. And there are like sort of vicissitudes of like different managerial styles and things mm -hmm. like that, that could go to explain it. But yeah, I think in many ways, I find a lot that they had a lot in common, even though at some point they stopped being officially affiliated or institutionally affiliated, right? Maybe that's partly because like the Seattle branch grew out of this sort of interesting, very 1970s, new agey sex cult that eventually also then reopened in um, San Francisco. <laughs> 
Yeah, it's a that's a whole hug story. That's a whole other podcast. <laughs> yeah, a whole other story. Don't worry, privates. I'm definitely going to ask Jane back to talk about the sex cult. There's a no sex cult left behind policy on this podcast. I will get the scoop. But like, you know, the founders of the business were very much um, situated in this this moment in this culture where, you know, it was the sexual revolution and the aftermath of the sexual revolution. It was the rise of new age movements. So there was a lot of emphasis on the value of pleasure sort of built into the sort of institutional framework of the business, even though it had many, many flaws beyond that. Do you feel like, I mean, so it wasn't unionized when you worked there. So do you feel like that would have been beneficial to your situation? Yeah. I mean, that's, it's really hard to speculate because um, I was there at the very end of the business. So like when it was like the last five years of its existence, I will say, you know, when it was closing, it was a source of great grief for the workforce. You know, it's like 60 people were essentially being losing a job. Right. But beyond that, you know, like a lot of the workforce really valued the lusty and the community and the job and what they got out of it. And I think despite that, like sort of enormous grief and that desire to do something right, there was this sort of like trickle or noise about like, well, maybe we should try to get it together and buy the business or things Mm -hmm. like that. You know, we didn't have that, again, that sort of institutional framework that would have been maybe more possible had we already been unionized. Right. Right. You know, like we didn't have an established practices of making decisions together, a sense that our workplace belongs to us. Right. right? And we should have a say in how it operates. And because of that, you know, we were just not well positioned to be able to actually effectively respond to that moment in a way that many of us might have liked to. I mean, right, like if you think about the San Francisco experience, they unionized in the late 90s. And then a few years later, we're told by the owners that we're closing the business, right? Right. So they got it together to buy the business and become a worker-owned co-op, which is something that has yet to have been replicated. And that, I think, really points to that sort of that value of having a union beyond the question of a wage increase is that it can give you a sense that your workplace belongs to you. And that you have some ability to collectively create the destiny you want for you, you and your coworkers. So some of the other issues that were raised by the unionization effort, like the race discrimination and because of the advent of the internet, there, you know, there was like some filming and stuff going on. Were those issues prevalent at your club during your time? I mean, I think we'd be really hard pressed to find an adult entertainment business where like racism is not a reality. Right. Right. Like, I mean, it's pretty much a reality in every workplace. So we didn't have a race-based scheduling system when I was working there. So I think one of the big achievements of like the unionization battle, particularly, you know, led by Siobhan Brooks was that they were able to change that policy. They ended that policy of like scheduling on the basis of race and hiring on the basis of race and color. And also when you put it in, you know, when you put it down into type and it's like in black and white, you're like, oh yeah, that's fucked up. Even if, yeah. <laughs> even if they were on board or came up with it at the beginning, they should have been like, oh God. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, it's, it's horrifying, but you know, it's also I mean, I have to hate to say it, but it's pretty common in desire industries or sex industries. Like, even really? if it's not officially written down, you know, like we all know that like there are color lines in who gets certain jobs, certain shifts, certain clients, right? So yeah, I think that like I did not there was not um 
evidence of that kind of institutional discrimination happening at the Lussie in Seattle when mm-hmm. I was working there. But certainly, you know, dancers of color have to put up with a lot of different forms of like both interpersonal racism and symbolic forms of racism in the workplace. Have you been following the Star Gardens situation at all? A little. So Star Gardens, they're unionizing through, or they're trying to unionize. I think they are stalled at the moment, but through Actors' Equity, which I thought was such an interesting and like kind of obvious choice in a lot of ways, but something I don't think has been pursued before. Yeah. I mean, I think there is some history of like, say, when stripping was still burlesque of like there being uh, like kind of entertainers, guilds or unions, some version of that. So that's, you know, that's some, I guess, probably some minor precursor to it. I mean, I think, you know, I will say my research is not about the Star Garden battle, but like, I think my research does offer a little sort of historic context for the battles over unionization, just because, you know, I think we've talked about it a little here, but like, we've seen a pretty dramatic transformation within the stripping industry over the last couple of decades. And certainly there's been new problems introduced as a result of the pandemic and the closures. But like, what has happened in adult entertainment? Okay, cities gentrified, right? Clubs increasingly move towards this very sort of national corporatized gentleman's club model. At the same time, increasingly in most American cities, like the adult entertainment industry is a land-based monopoly. Right. There are only so many licenses or only so many places where you can put a strip club. And that has turned stripping into like a very big real estate game, limiting the amount of clubs that can be, you know, present within any city and often creating the conditions for sort of local monopolies where like one dude, one company, one chain owns all the clubs. So that puts a lot of pressure on workers, right? Like they, when you're in working in that sort of context where everything is increasingly corporatized and also monopolized, like you're going to see a decrease in work conditions. But like at the same time, like stripping has become super professionalized in a lot of ways over the last few decades, right? Like you have to what is significant amount of investment into your your look, your training, mm-hmm. your skill set, et cetera. Your branding, like everything. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So like at the same time that strippers are sort of being reclassified as independent contractors, which was not the norm up until the 80s, often strippers were salaried or employees. But it was only in the 80s that they started being reclassified as independent contractors because that saves these businesses who are undergoing these change a lot of money. So, you know, I think that given all those sort of things together, it's it makes a sort of pressure cooker where increasingly you're going to see, you know, pockets of the workforce who are like, okay, we are having to put in a lot of investment, a lot of our own resources. And we're getting less and less back from the people who are sort of employing us. And we don't have any other healthy competition. We can't go to an alternative setting and say, I'm going to work for this guy because he's at least a little bit better. So given that, like, it makes sense that we're seeing sort of a resurgence of questions about unionization. So Jane just raised a really good point about the reclassification of strippers. This was actually at the crux of what started my reporting. In California, the ABC test went into effect at the beginning of 2020. That means a worker is considered an employee and not an independent contractor unless they meet all three conditions of the ABC test. A, the person is independent of the hiring organization in connection with the performance of the work, both under the contract for the performance of the work and in fact. 
that's a little complicated. So I take that to mean that when you're performing the work, you're not being managed by the hiring entity. B, the person performs work that is outside the hiring entity's business. Like if you made a website or managed social media for a dog walking company. And C, the person is routinely doing work in an independently established trade, occupation, or business that is the same as the work being requested and performed. That would be like a plumber with a variety of different clients and they are doing a plumbing job for you. You know, it's interesting because it's like being an employee can suck and being an independent contractor can also suck, right? But yeah, I mean, if you look at sort of the legal test that the National Labor Relations Board comes up with for what who counts as an employee, strippers tend to pass that test, right? Like they're Uh essential to the operations of the business. It's not like a, you know, like, company that creates pens that's like, oh, we need a web designer to come in and design us a, a web page. Like that no. <laughs> you can't have it's to strip a scheduled up. shift. Yeah. It's a scheduled shift. Yes, control over the workers, things like that. So in many ways, like strippers meet the test of being considered employees, which is why again they win all of those lawsuits, employee uh-huh. misclassification suits when they're brought. But being an employee is also not great sometimes either. So yeah, totally. I guess anything else that you would like to share with listeners about your research or your experience? Yeah, I guess I hope that, you know, as we're trying to figure out a future for all workers, but in particular for like sex workers and erotic dancers who, you know, are often still trying to convince other people that they are workers. I hope that like we can find models from the past that allow us to sort of think beyond the limits of, you know, the binary classifications that we find ourselves in whether it's employee or independent contractor. And particularly if those models allow us a sense of like, what would it be like to create a workplace and a work environment where we work together, you know, where we cooperate towards a shared goal, where we can build sort of a post-capitalist, but nonetheless fun, sexy, erotic, you know, future for all of us. Yeah. And I think the Lusty offers that in some ways. Thank you so much to Jane. I love understanding sex positivity as a political awareness bestowed on us by sex workers. That's awesome. I will carry that with me forever. If you like this episode, we have a bunch of other episodes like this in our archives. In fact, the very first episode of Private Parts Unknown features some strippers from Soldiers of Pole before that organization became known as Strippers United. And then we went on to cover their very cool Raising Hell event with a killer experiential episode. And I did a two-part series on the LA Sex Work State of the Union late 2021, early 2022. But if you're looking for more historical context, kind of like we talked about today, I have to recommend episode 63 with Caitlin Bailey of Old Pros. It's so good. Here's a little preview. This goes back to the the obscenity laws of the 1870s. You know, this shit goes back to Comstock, the white slave law of 1910. We have been peddling this misinformation, which is that like, White women, right, must live in fear of Black, you know, Native uh, Native American and immigrant men, right? When in reality, what we have longed for, what we've been asking for, and what we have needed is protection from domestic violence and the violence within our own relationships. 
Thanks for tuning into this episode of Private Parts Unknown. I will be back with more on the Lusty Lady and Star Gardens in future episodes, so stay tuned. And to stay in touch between episodes, make sure to follow me at Courtney Kosak. That's K-O-C-A-K on Instagram and Twitter. And follow the show at Private Parts Unknown on Instagram and at Private Parts Un on Twitter. For the latest episodes, look down and make sure you're following us on your favorite podcast player right now. Usually, like on Spotify, there's a little bell notification and you can click follow. And of course, subscribe to our newsletter at privatepartsunknown.substack.com. The link is in the episode description. Shout out to Amy Rausch for the bomb-ass theme music. For more info about Amy and her music, check out amyrausch.com. That's Amy, R-A-A-S-C-H.com. This episode was mixed by my ride-or-die audio guy, Michael Castaneda of Plastic Audio. And after enjoying this content, could we ask you for a quick favor? Please go to ratethispodcast.com slash private and give us a five-star rating and review. It helps other people find the show. It's social proof. It makes them think it's going to be good when they click on it. And it makes us feel really good. Again, that is ratethispodcast.com slash private. Or if you're listening on Spotify, you can just go to the upper left-hand corner of our page, click the star button, and then click all five stars. And I just have to say... I asked you guys to help out with ratings and reviews, and you have been so amazing. The goal was 250 on Apple Podcasts, and we're so close. We're at 249. So if someone could just throw us over the edge and give us that one more five-star rating and review. And on Spotify, you guys have been absolutely crushing it. The goal was 50, and we're now at 54. So the new goal is 75, and I know you're going to help me. So... Smash those five stars on Spotify and let's get to 75, baby. Thank you so much. Until next time, I am wishing you lots of horniness and happiness and the kind of sex positivity that allows you to speak truth to power. Bye. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. Laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.